Father, I pray that you would sound forth now from your inspired word a summons to us that will be irresistible and will contain in it the power to accomplish what it commands. I pray that you would protect us from the devil and from our own flesh and our indwelling sin and from all pride and all fear and greed and unrighteous anger. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would have full sway in these next moments and that the Word of God would run and triumph over all sin in our lives and over everything that keeps us from following Christ, no matter the cost. I pray that the ripple effect of tonight would be for every neighborhood represented and every family and every people group and would run to the nations and that you would do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think tonight for the glory of your Son. In his name I pray. Amen. If you want four pegs on which to hang this message, let me give them to you from the outset here and then you may be able to follow me better as I go along. I have not forgotten the promise that I made last night about trying to answer the question at the end, and so it will come, but not at the beginning. First, darkness under God, or you could say the darkness of suffering under God. Second, joy in God. Third, love from God and Fourth, the beauty of God. Those are the four pegs. The darkness that we often walk through under God, sustained by the joy of God, mediated to us through the love that comes from God, upheld and given joy by the beauty of God. So my aim tonight is to summon you and to help you take your share of suffering. Take your share of suffering under the mighty hand of God, sustained by joy in God, flowing through love from God, manifest in the beauty of God and all that he is for us in Christ. So let's take these one at a time, and I hope to make clear as we go along how this relates to last night. First, take your share of suffering under the mighty hand of God. Now, you won't want to take the time probably to look up these texts, but let me just read to you 
some. I'm going to begin in Hebrews. In fact, you might want to turn there because I'm going to be in Hebrews for a little while. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is a chapter that we get real excited about until we get to verse 35. Because it seems so successful. So like the prayer of Jabez. And then comes this terrible verse 35 following. And I'm just going to start reading about what happens to people of faith. Faith, you know, this is the great faith chapter at verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then he puts in a little parenthesis before he continues in the list. Of whom the world was not worthy. Close parenthesis. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these gained approval through their faith. Observations about that text. One, these people are full of faith. They do not experience what they're going through because of the absence of faith in their life. They walk through these things. They are sawn in two. They are killed with the sword. They are stoned. They are stripped naked. They hide in caves and thus are vindicated by their faith. So baloney to the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. Baloney was an understatement for your weakness sake. (laughs) The second observation I have about these folks is that they were a gift to the world. That little parenthesis there in verse 38 Of whom the world was not worthy. What does that mean when you say the world is not worthy of somebody? It means they're a gift that the world didn't deserve. God gave these people in this condition to the world for a reason. And the world doesn't deserve this kind of people. People of faith who suffer to display the superior value of their God over worldly comforts, the world does not deserve this kind of people. And I want you to be one. I'm going to call you to be that 
third observation or really question about this text. Should our missionaries come home? Now? Jesus didn't come home. Maybe. Maybe not. He didn't come home. He died. Therefore, take your share of suffering. That's peg number one. Darkness or suffering in the caves, unclothed, beaten, sawn in two, killed with the sword, because your faith is so strong, not weak. They gained approval by their faith, people of whom the world was not worthy. Peg number two. Take your share of suffering under the mighty hand of God, sustained by joy in God. Now, let's just stay in Hebrews here on this second peg. Sustained by joy in God. Go with me now back to chapter 10. If you want to follow, if you want to listen, that's okay. But I want to show you what the last 10, 11, 12, 13, four chapters of Hebrews are all about. Because most people have this crazy notion, Hebrews is the Melchizedek book. Shut it. You can't understand Hebrews. It's too complicated. Too many Old Testament allusions. This is not a very practical book. And besides, what we want is radical Christians not Old Testament experts. That is folly. Watch this. Chapter 10, verse 34. The situation, early Christians, some of them are in jail. Some of them are not thrown in jail yet. Some who are not in jail decide to risk their lives and their property to go visit those who are in jail. And here's how they did it. Verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So, they have a little prayer meeting, right? Some of our brothers and sisters are in jail. There's no food in jail. They're going to starve. Let's take them food. But if we take them food, they'll know that we're connected and that we probably believe what they believe and they might arrest us too. And we have kids and we have houses. And they went, and their houses did get plundered and seized. And how did they accept it? 
joyfully. Does that make your spine tingle? Does that make you want to be free from the American bondage to prosperity and materialism and consumerism? Don't you want to love Jesus at such a depth and with such a satisfaction that when you take a risk to do a right thing and your house gets plastered with we hate Christians or stones come through the window or your car gets burned or rocked and you're maybe in it with your two little boys. You want to sing. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's go. Come on. That's chapter 10. Chapter 11. Pick a verse. Let's go to verse 26. There are others. Moses considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. Just like those saints in chapter 10, verse 34, they knew they had a better and lasting possession. And that's how they could rejoice in the plundering of their property. Now, here's Moses counting abuse. Wealth. (laughs) These are strange people. Christians are inexplicable people, aren't they? Do they look inexplicable in Greenville or like everybody else? Does anybody ask you about the hope that you have because it doesn't look like you're hoping in all the same stuff they're hoping in? Retirement. Nice cars, nice houses, nice clothes, nice long vacations. Does anybody ask you, what are you hoping in? Who is your treasure? Well, Moses had a treasure. For he looked to the reward, the joy out there streamed back into the present and freed him to embrace abuse as wealth. Oh, to be strange. Don't you want to be weird? Don't you want to be weird? That's chapter 11. Chapter 12, verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. If you needed any vindication for this motive of 
Chapter 10, verse 34. Chapter 11, verse 26. Now you've got the warrant from the Son of God motivated the very same way. How did He endure the cross? It's a screaming torment. How did He endure the shame? He was naked, spit upon, pulled beard, laughter, women and men standing all around. Horrid moment. And He could have called twelve legions of angels to vindicate Himself. How did he make it? Answer. Joy set before him. How are you going to make it? Have you got such a clear vision of a superior satisfaction coming your way irreversibly that you can endure the cross? You can take it on your back and follow him on the Calvary road. That's chapter 12. You're picking up a theme? Let's go to chapter 13. Verse 13 and 14. Let us go to him now. This is the last chapter. This is his last cry. This is what the book of Hebrews is about, folks. If you don't get Melchizedek, get the main point. The main point is... Let us go outside the camp, bearing his reproach. How are you going to do that? How are you going to move away from comfort toward need? That's what Christians do. Christians move from comfort to need, from security to need. Christians don't do what Americans do. Christians don't get their lifestyle from advertising. They get their lifestyle from Jesus. Let us go with Him. With Him outside the camp to bear reproach for Him. Now here comes the warrant and ground and motivation and strength. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek a city which is to come. 1034, 11-26, 12-2, 13-14. There's no doubt what this book is about. It's to summon you to bear your share of suffering for the joy in God that is set before you. Therefore, your biggest agenda in life is to be happier in God than in your family. Or sex. Or money. Or job or leisure, or computer games, or friends, or A's on tests, or anything else. That's your main job. It's a heart work, folks. No list stuff. We're not into lists. We're into absolutely, radically transformed hearts that are so raptured with Jesus Christ, they let everything go. And walk with Him away from comfort, away from security, toward Calvary. Oh, how many people use the cross to solve their sin problem and say nothing about their lifestyle. Half a cross we want. 
just make me feel good about my sins so that I can know I'm forgiven, period. The cross is a call. Come on, outside the city, bearing abuse with him. Let's go. Let's not come home when the war starts. Let's go when the war starts. How's the Great Commission going to be done? If everybody flies for safety as soon as the bombs start dropping. Oh, what God is up to in our day. Nobody knows. It's just glorious. It's glorious. Who would have thought in 1938, 40s, China evacuated, kill them all, get them out. Oh, God, what a defeat for the kingdom. No missionaries in China. In order that he might produce 80 million You don't ever know what God is up to. God is doing 10,000, thousand things every minute of every day you never dreamed for His glory. And our job is to get on board. That's peg number two. Peg number three. Take your share of suffering for the mighty hand of God, under the mighty hand of God. Second, sustained by joy in God. That was the motive in every one of those four texts from Hebrews. Now, thirdly, a joy flowing through love from God. Flowing through love. From God. If the future joy is to stream back into the presence, the present, and sustain your radical willingness to suffer for Christ, that joy has to be better and more durable than everything life offers. What is it? What is better than life? Psalm 63, verse 3. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The crisis at this moment, in this room right now, is whether you love that statement and believe it with all your heart. Do you love, embrace, cherish, treasure, delight in, depend on, rest in, Cleave to, hope in the steadfast love of God as more precious to you than your life.
That's why you're here tonight, is to move into that arena. What about more durable? It's better. Is it more durable? It's got to be more durable. I mean, I don't want just a ground of joy that is really satisfying for 80 years and then nothing for 80 million ages. Who cares about that? Who cares about 80 years of ecstasy and after that misery for eternity? Not me. I want something that is better than what the world offers and more durable than what the world offers. What's that? Well, if we all had learned it in the same version, we could all say it together. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels no principalities, no things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love of God in Christ Jesus is more durable than life and death. Anything the world can offer the love of God is more durable. Anything that death can take, the love of God is more durable. It's better. It's more durable. I will have it. I will prefer it. I will love it. I will cherish it. And if my heart grows cold and begins to wander and drift, I will fight with every fiber of my being to hold fast to the love of God and to cleave to Him and to plead with Him not to let me go. Just like it says, I should in Philippians chapter 3. Press on to lay hold of that for which you have been laid hold of. Leaves one last question. One last peg. If it is love, flowing to us from God in Christ that brings us our joy better, more durable than anything the world has to offer. What is it bringing us? What is the, the love of God, the, the disposition of God to be for us bringing us? What is mediated to us through the love of God? And that's peg number four. The beauty of God. Or the biblical word, the glory of God. All that God is for us in Jesus is carried to us. Take your share of suffering for the under the mighty hand of God, sustained by joy in God, flowing through the love of God, manifest in the beauty of all that God is for you 
in Christ. Now, here we are where I promised you I would bring you last night. The problem that was created after last night's message or in last night's message was how God's self-exaltation could be loving. Because the Bible says, love seeks not its own. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. And you spent all of last night telling us he does everything to seek his own glory. So you just tried to persuade us he's not a loving God. So we came back tonight for you to get this right. Now, I gave the answer to that this afternoon from one kind of text, and now I'm going to try to answer it for this group with another kind of text. This is the hardest thing for Americans to get, or Westerners, or anybody who's uh, fallen and therefore self-centered. That God's beckoning us to praise Him, God's doing everything He does to magnify His glory, that doesn't put us at the center, but puts Him at the center, Americans cannot feel that as love because for 40 years we've been taught a definition of what it means to feel loved utterly at odds with this view. Test yourself to see if you're mainly American or mainly biblical. Try this. Do you feel more loved when someone... Let's say God. When God makes much of you. Or do you feel more loved when God mightily, mercifully enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Which one causes you to feel more loved? When he makes much of you, thus putting you at the center, or when he enables you to see and savor his glory and enjoy making much of him forever. Test yourself. You have been taught in public school. You have been taught in Christian schools. You have been taught in secular curriculum and evangelical curriculum that being loved means being made much of. I could put some technical words on it that would make bells go off immediately, but no reason getting people more upset than they already get. who've been schooled this way, as everybody in this room has been, including me. We need to take a bath in the Bible 
from the 20th century, from the Enlightenment, from fall. We need a bath of God-centeredness, which I tried to give you last night. And for some, it felt like acid, not love. So now here I am trying to explain why God's God-centeredness and his summoning you to join him in a radically God-centered life is the most loving thing he could possibly do for you. So to do that, I invite you to open your Bibles now or to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. This is the last group of texts I want to look at with you. You know the story. Lazarus is sick. He has a sister, Martha, and a sister, Mary. Jesus loves this family. And what we read in verses 1 to 5 or 1 to 6 of chapter 11 is absolutely mind-boggling when it comes to defining love. Ask yourself as I read this now, what is the love of Christ? Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with his ointment, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now stop right there and make sure verse 2 sinks in. That hasn't happened yet. In the book of John, that's going to happen later in the book of John. Why does he say that here? The reader doesn't even know what he's talking about first time through. They got to go thumbing around. What are you talking about? And find out later in the book. He felt Obliged, I believe, to say this, to underline the fact he loves these people. He really loves Mary. Mary was the one who got down on her hands and knees, anointed him, took her hair, imagine it, and wiped his feet. When was the last time anybody did that for you? Never. It's here to endear these two. So that you know that when Jesus does what he's about to do, which is one of the most hard things he ever did, it's not because he didn't love her, but that he loved her. Now, this is going to be said twice more. Watch it. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he Whom you love is sick. There it is. They're they're pulling his heartstrings here. You love him. You love him. This text is about love. This text is about love. Come. Verse 4. 
But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. It's not unto death, but for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now stop right there. Let's make sure we get the setting. Is this text about love or is this text about the glory of God? Answer, yes. (laughs) Which is why it is the answer to last night's problem. Are you with me? At least we've got the data in front of us. This text is about love. And Jesus says, this sickness is about God. It's about God. It's about His glory and my glory in His glory. This is a teamwork between the Father and the Son to get glory for the Father, glory for the Son. This is the massive self-exaltation of Christ and the self-exaltation of God that I tried to press on you last night. And it's all about love. So how does love act when the glory of God is the issue? Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha. He doesn't want you to miss the point here, right? That's the third thing we've seen, the third time. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. No doubt about love. Love, love, love is driving Jesus here. Which makes verse 6 unintelligible. So, now that word is all important. Therefore, because he loved Martha, because he loved Mary, because he loved Lazarus, therefore, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer. In the place where he was. And let him die. Intentionally. That is a strange way to love somebody. Now, to make sense of that, you have to ask last night's question. How does... The glory of God and the glory of the Son relate to love. This sickness, he said, is all about God's glory. God's going to get glory. God's going to get glory here. To which I can hear a typical American self-centered person saying, Frankly, I would just like you to heal my brother. Just quit that. Theological mumbo-jumbo of yours and make my brother well. He's dying. He's gasping. He's got pneumonia or something that I don't understand, but it hurts. That's the way we talk. That's the way we talk. Give me your theology of glory. Get my brother well. And Jesus is not Moved, he does not go to heal him. 
Is that because he doesn't love these three? Jesus and John have bent over backwards here to say that's not what's happening. This is all about love. So what is love? What is love? Here's what love is. Love is God doing whatever he can do. Us doing with each other whatever we can do to bring people into the deepest possible satisfaction in the glory of God and the glory of the Son as we possibly can at any cost. That's love. Americans don't feel that. Why? Because we're so man-centered rather than God-centered. We can't even grasp the biblical meaning of love. Give you an illustration. At our church back in 1996, we crafted that mission statement that Scott quoted to you. We worked a year and a half on that definition. And then I preached for eight weeks on it. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And somebody came up to me while I was preaching on that and said, Don't we want something in our mission statement about the love of God? Now, quiz to see if you've gotten the message. What do you think I answered? Don't say it out loud. Just say it to yourself. What did I answer? I answered... This is the definition of love at Bethlehem. If you don't see love here, you don't understand the Bible. We exist to spread a passion in Greenville, South Carolina, in this little conference. A passion for the supremacy of God in all the things of your lives, for the joy of all peoples. If I succeed in doing that when I'm here, I have loved you, whether you feel it or not. Because there's nothing more satisfying than God, nothing more glorious and more precious and more valuable than the beauty and the glory of God. You were made for nothing less than God. And if I could kindle all your passion for God, I would have brought you not only your ultimately satisfying treasure, I would have been an instrument of quickening in your own soul a Holy Spirit-enabled delight And when those two come together, you will have arrived at infinite joy and satisfaction. And if that isn't love to you, you will never know love. But we have simply bought into a definition of love that can just leave God out. Just make much of me. Just make much of me. And I'll be loved. (laughs) 
Don't settle for that. Don't settle for that. Now, I wonder if you think that interpretation of these six verses is overdone. Lest you do, let's go to one. Mm, if I say one last text, I might lie. <laughs> let's go to John seventeen twenty four. To underline what we've just said. Here's Jesus praying. It's the high priestly prayer. I hope I do not need to argue for the fact that this is a loving prayer. Because Jesus is a loving Savior. He loved His own and He loved them to the uttermost. Chapter 13. And part of loving them to the uttermost was praying for them in John 17. And the climax of the prayer for His people, for you, in John 17 is in verse 24. And listen to what He asks for you. What would you want Him to ask for you? If He loves you, what would you want Him to ask the Father to do for you? Make you central? Let's see what he asks. John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you gave me for you loved me. Before the foundation of the world. What does he ask for you? That you might be with him in glory. Why? To see him. To see him in glory. Now, nothing could be more self-centered for Jesus to say. You can see me, me. I mean, if I talked like that, you'd walk out. Look. You'd hate that. And rightly so. You know why? John Piper's a loser. He's a sinner. He's finite. And Jesus alone is the infinitely valuable treasure of the universe who alone can say, look at me and be loving when he says it. If I say it, look at me, I'm cruel because I'm deflecting attention from him. If he says it, look at me, he's loving because he's deflecting attention from me and everything else in your life that he will let you down in the end. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And therefore, he will not let you be self-centered. He will not let you believe that being loved is being made much of. He will insist that being loved is making much of Him forever because that's the only satisfaction in the universe forever and ever and ever. And that's my answer to last night. I can't do it any better. If you don't get it now, you probably are going to get it from me. 
You'll have to get it from somebody else. And I'm going to close by connecting now back to suffering. And then we'll stop. Because I'm calling you to take your share of suffering under the mighty hand of God, sustained by joy in God, mediated by the love of God. And the object of that, what comes to us in the love of God, is God's glory Himself, His beauty, which satisfies our soul as we spend an eternity making much of Him. Now, here's the connection with suffering. I have two texts in mind. I'm glad I didn't tell you I was reading the last text. 2 Corinthians 1 9, 2 Corinthians 12 9. Might be memorable that way. 2 Corinthians 1 9, 12 9. And I close with these. In 2 Corinthians 1 9, Paul is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about the horrible experience I had in Asia Minor. I was crushed to the point of thinking I was going to die. That was so that I might rely not upon myself, but on God who raises the dead. So what's he saying? He's saying there was a purpose in my coming right to the brink of the grave. There was a purpose. And the purpose was that I might no longer rely upon myself, but on God who raises the dead. God's purpose in your suffering is God-reliance, not health-reliance. God-reliance, not family-reliance. God reliance, not physical pleasure reliance. God's purpose in your suffering is God reliance. And 12.9, thorn in the flesh, a minister of Satan given to me. Three times I cry out, take it away, Jesus. No. Jesus, please take it away. It hurts. No. Jesus, please, a third time, I ask you, as a loving Lord, take the thorn in my flesh away from me. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power. Hear this offensively. My power is made perfect. In your weakness. Now, here we are at the dividing line. Are you going to say, I don't care about your magnifying your power. I'm tired of this pain. Quit thinking about yourself, Jesus, and think about me. You going to say that? I'm not taking your thorn away. Because my power, my power, my power will be made perfect in your pain, in your weakness. Do you feel loved at that moment? Most Americans don't. They don't. Why? Because Christ is not all. Christ is not central. Christ is not their treasure. They have absorbed a man-centered, self-centered view of the universe and Christianity that makes that unintelligible as love. And I'm here tonight to plead with you. That is 
love. Whatever Jesus has to do to perfect the beauty and the value of his perfection and power in your life is a loving thing for him to do. Whatever he can do to wean you off of your dependence on physical pleasure and family and job and retirement and nice things. Whatever he has to do to get you to embrace him alone and his power and his justice and his goodness and his grace and his beauty as your all in all so that you can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever he has to do to bring that about is love. Please. Please pray about this. Greenville could be absolutely shaken if this many people believed that and lived that. America is filled with culturally shaped nominal believers called evangelicals and fundamentalists and liberal Protestants and Catholics all of whom are more shaped by the culture than they are by these texts and this God-centered, radical vision of what love is. And I just plead with you, pray about your soul. Pray about your marriage. Pray about your children. Pray about your life. Finishers, I mean people like me, 55 and above, pray about your future. Come on. Dream a dream with me. Some people my age are starting to coast into golf. (laughs) When they ought to be buying discounted senior citizens tickets to Pakistan. For a couple of reasons. One, it's cheap. And two, death by the sword is better than Alzheimer's. And young people, I love you. I'm glad I'm 55. I'm old enough to be the father of everybody under 30. So I talk like a father now when I go places. Nothing. Oh, God. Nothing would make me happier than for my Abraham to die for Jesus tomorrow. Because he's not walking with him. I would give anything if he would be killed for Jesus tomorrow. And not play his music for the devil. Anything. Can you say that, parents? Are you so happy your kids are walking with Jesus that you're willing to let him go? Let's pray. Father, I don't know where people are in this room right now. You know, some came in here not born again. I'm sure that. Would you take them for your own? Just lavish your love upon them right now. Help them to know what love is. 
to draw them out of their own idolatries and bondages into a ravished relationship with you is love, no matter the cost. And for those who are are believers and born of God, just wake us up, O God, to the kind of radical commitment to commending Christ to our neighbors and to the nations, no matter the cost. Oh, God, shake this city where I grew up. Shake it to the foundations. Bind pastors together in a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all the neighborhoods and all the races and all the nations and all the ages. Lord, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all, beyond all that I've been able to ask or think or preach, do a wonder for your great name and our great good in this place. I pray through Christ. Amen.